Amen, amen. Hey, this morning we're going to begin in uh, Luke 22, and then we're going to find ourselves ending in John 21. So if you want to put one finger in Luke 22 and then put a piece of paper or something there in John 21, you'll be in, in good shape for where we're going to spend time this morning. So one of the things that if you've been here over the last two or three years, or the last several years anyway, Every time, as we kind of push up towards Easter, there's this sense of kind of coming together, and then corporately we go out as a body, and we try and hit different neighborhoods and engage these different neighborhoods with the gospel. And so as we push up to this, I wanted us to just take an opportunity, uh, take a moment, and, and think through kind of what that conversation looks like. What exactly are we communicating as we go forward and we have conversations with people when, they, when we knock on the door and they open the door and kind of beyond just kind of cursory, hey, this is who I am, this is who you are, kind of these you know, natural things that we just kind of roll out in regular conversation, what do, what do we say beyond that? What is the substance of our conversation? Well, as I begin to kind of reflect on that and think through this conversation and think through what that looks like, a big part of it anyway is communicating the idea of forgiveness. Now, the, the idea of forgiveness makes no sense, right, if, if you don't feel like you have anything to be uh, forgiven for. It makes no sense if you don't feel like there's something that, that you've personally done that was wrong. And so th- that's at least one aspect of it, communicating to a person that there is this creator God who spun all things into existence, that, that all of humanity has rebelled against this creator God, that you too, that, that I as well, we have, we have rebelled against this creator God. The Bible calls that sin And the Bible gives us an opportunity, a medium, a way of being forgiven. And that comes through Jesus Christ. And through his death, he took on the pain and the penalty and the punishment of our sin, of your sin, of my sin. And through his rising again and being raised to life, we have opportunity to also have our sins forgiven as we believe in Christ. And we believe in his salvific death, the fact that his death and and my faith tethered to Jesus can save me and and does save me. But what do we do in the midst of it for a Christian? Say you go and you're speaking to a brother or sister in Christ and they just have this sense that the things they've done, the way they have lived their lives, have effectively made them unacceptable for Christian ministry. They're really wrestling in some sense with the idea of of what it looks like to be forgiven in the midst of life. And so they they understand in some sense they had to be forgiven initially uh, by God through Jesus. But they're really wondering, what does it look like in the midst of all these things to be forgiven now? How do I wrestle with forgiveness? How can I be restored to God? And and is there even really a way for me to do that? Is there even really a way for me to be good with God in this relationship? Or am I always going to carry around the stain of my sin? Am I always going to carry around the baggage that, that is associated with this action, this thing that I've done, this, this way that I've thought, this thing that I have done? Well, maybe, maybe a year or so ago, I'm, I'm reading through the Gospel of Luke. And I, I came across this passage that I know I've read a number of times before, but it, it just stuck out to me in a way that it never had before. And so I want to share some of that with y'all this morning and pray that God would do a work of healing and restoration in our hearts as well. Amen? So you get into Luke 22, and, and it's Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper. And so this is kind of casting the scene for us. And so we see the disciples all kind of lounging on the ground. And they're surrounded by the table. And Jesus is giving us 
uh, this tremendous teaching to them, and he's talking to them uh, mainly about what it's going to look like for him to die, what it's going to look like for him to suffer and to die. And, and so it seems like an odd place for a conversation about who's best, but the disciples don't always pick the most ideal time for those kind of conversations. So they start saying, I'm best and I'm the greatest. And, and so Jesus has begun to kind of settle these things out and to, and to help them move through and to understand that he and he alone is worthy to be worshipped, that he and he alone is worthy of all praise. But in the midst of the gathering, in the midst of having all the disciples gathered around. And so I just want you to, to focus on that. He turns and he zeroes in on one disciple in particular. He looks at Simon Peter. And so he's, he's got his laser-like focus locked in on Simon Peter. And all the disciples kind of sense that the conversation is changing a little bit. And so he walks over to him and he says these words, Simon, Simon. Now, I don't know how you grew up, but, but I knew if my mom said, like, the, the triple name, the Matthew Allen Beasley, oh, man. It was like, be still and be invisible. I, this, was, this was my approach. I was the younger brother. It didn't work, but be still and be invisible. But when he says, Simon, Simon, he's not calling him out on something. He's not angry with him. In essence, what he's done is, with his words, he has cupped Simon's face. With his words, he's communicating to him, I love you. And with his words, he's communicating to him what is going to be a difficult word for Simon to hear. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you to sift you like wheat. Now, something interesting is happening here. Although still his focus is just on Simon. He's just looking at Simon. When he says Satan's demanded to have you, he's talking about all of them. So all of them get to hear what it looks like for Jesus to communicate directly to Simon, but for him to, 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 to lump everybody else in the group as well. Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now this is what Satan wants. Effectively, Satan wants his movement in the lives of the disciples and those things that are going to be quickly unfolding to be so incredibly ruinous, so incredibly devastating, so incredibly uh, destructive to them in the way they respond from these actions that they're useless for the gospel. This is what Satan wants. He wants his investment in Simon and Matthew and the others to be so incredibly devastating that they have no ability to overcome them. Satan's demanded to, to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But listen to the words of Christ's prayer. But I have prayed for you singular, that your faith may not fail. Now, this is, an, this is an interesting prayer. In some sense, it would have made more sense in, in, in my mind if Jesus would have said, look, Simon, this is what Satan wants, but, but my prayer for you is that these things wouldn't come about. These things wouldn't happen. But this isn't the prayer that he prays at all. The prayer that he prays instead is that when these things happen, they wouldn't be permanently ruinous to you. That they wouldn't be permanently ruinous. In essence, that when you encounter this failure, when you encounter this loss, that you're able to move past it. That you're able to move beyond it. Simon, Simon. Jesus doesn't want to see Peter go through this. He knows that he's going to. And his prayer is that when Peter goes through it, that he would be able to move past it at some point. And one of the ways we know this is by the instructive words that Jesus offers after this. Look at what he says here. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And this is where we begin to get an inkling of the understanding 
of the incredibly instructive and powerful forgiveness found in the words of Jesus. Jesus isn't isn't softening somehow what Simon's getting ready to do. And I think we need to understand that. We need to pause for a moment. Because most of us, many of us, have gone through quite a number of Easter's, right? And so we've, we've read the stories. We, we recognize at some point Peter's going to betray him. Judas is already headed that way. He loves money more than Jesus. But, but just understand for a second, what Simon is getting ready to do, what he's going to do, is to absolutely, certifiably deny Christ. Now think about that in terms of not some remote character listed in the pages of the New Testament, but think about that in terms of your spouse. Think about that in terms of your child. Think about that in terms of you and in your life. How devastating that would be. What a difficult thing to rise to the other side of, but one of the things that shows us is the incredibly instructive and all-redeeming power of the grace found in Jesus. Because he comes to him. And notice he doesn't say, that. look, when you're on the far side of this, you need to come to the guys and say, look, made a terrible mistake, got hasty, got caught up in kind of the, the moment of the thing. I deny Jesus. I understand that there's a penalty box time for me. I understand you guys can't trust me, that like you can have the meeting, I'll be on the outside of the room, kind of just doing this number, and it's kind of there. And, and once I have proved myself, once I've reestablished that I'm a good person, then I can get back in and I can be counted in the number. Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't even say, all right, now guys, look here. Judas is gone. Peter's about to make a big mistake. Y'all need to cut him some slack. He doesn't do that. Instead, what he gives him are words for the journey of life on the far side of disobedience. And he does the same thing for us. I don't know where you are this morning, but I'm willing to bet that there are a number of us in this room today, and you're struggling with sin in your life. And you feel in the midst of your struggle with sin as if sin is constantly winning the victory. You struggle with drugs and alcohol, you struggle with pornography, you struggle with anger, you struggle with just being a good person. And you feel that in the midst of this, there is no hope for me, there is no value for me, I am simply going to limp along this life until the end. But what we see in the gracious words of Christ is that freedom and value for you is on the far side of disobedience, not the near side. Freedom and value and worth and purpose for you is on the far side of your disobedience where Christ awaits you with a gracious word of you are forgiven. So in the midst of the disciples hearing, prior to Peter's betrayal, prior to his denial, he gives him this commission that the other disciples desperately need Peter. The other disciples desperately need him. And so in essence, the, the word that he gives them, the command that he gives them, isn't once you've got your life squared away, once you've got all these things worked out, then turn and help your brothers out. But, it, but both things happen simultaneously. Both things are happening in, in an instant. In essence, he says this, turning back to them, strengthen your brothers. As he's turning from failure, as he's turning from devastation, it is in that moment when he is humble, in that moment when he is broken, and in that moment that he is most useful for the cause of Christ. Why do you think that is? It's because in that moment, in those moments in our lives, we are acutely aware of our frailty. 
We're acutely aware of our brokenness. Man, I can tell you that in the moments when I mess up and I, and I sin, or, you know, just kind of do something wrong, if somebody comes over to me, they don't have to remind me how broken I am. They don't have to remind me what a failure I am. I get it in those moments. God takes my pride and he, he destroys it. He puts it right there in front of my face. He takes my goodness, he takes my success, he takes my failures, and all of those things right there in the middle of them, I don't need to be reminded of the need for humility because it's all I've got. This is what makes Peter so incredibly useful for the kingdom on the far side of his failure. So Peter hears this. Peter hears this gracious instruction of Jesus, and, and just remember that Jesus has kind of cupped Peter's face with his words, and Peter hears this, and he just immediately discards it. He's heard this testimony of his failure, this prophecy Jesus has spoken of his failure. Peter says to him, <clears throat> Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Those are good words, Jesus. Those may be for somebody else. I noticed Judas cut out earlier. Maybe we could call him back, and those would be helpful for him. But you need to understand, those. I, I don't really need that. I'm willing to go to prison. I'm willing to die with you. No, the other disciples hear this and they think, slow clap, Peter. I mean, like, this is, this is powerful stuff. This is exciting. We remember a few months ago when Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. All that seems to be well behind you. You're willing to die. You're willing to go to prison with Jesus. I'm willing to go to prison. I'm willing to die for you. Peter has no doubt of the strength of his faith in Jesus. Peter has no doubts. As it, as it comes to his dependence upon Jesus. He needs to be with Jesus. He can be with no other. Jesus, knowing the future, Jesus, knowing Peter's heart, hears these words and recognizes that Peter hasn't accepted them. And so he utters these words. He says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Three times. Peter's going to be given three different opportunities to stand for Jesus. And three times he's going to fail. We jump forward a little bit in the narrative. 22 and verse 54. After the disciples and Jesus have gathered in the garden of Gethsemane. Verse 54 says, Then they seized him, speaking of Jesus, and they led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter's already creating distance. Peter's already, by, by virtue of just kind of trailing back, he's created distance. Peter, who was so uh, quick with a sword, not great with the aim, has already created distance between he and Jesus. And look, listen to what he says here. Look how Luke sets this up. He says, and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, they sat down together. So this is a scene. Jesus is in, in the high priest's house. Peter's outside with some men and women, and there's a charcoal fire burning there. And they all gather around. It's the middle of the night, and so the fire's giving them warmth, and the fire's giving them light. And he's standing there. And, and, and apparently they're engaging in some conversation. What do you think's taking place in there? How do you think things are going? You know, I, I remember this Jesus guy. I remember when he, he healed my cousin. Oh, I heard this fantastic story about him. Did you know that they say he could walk on water? That's, that's not even beginning. I, I heard he brought this guy Lazarus back from death. I wonder what they're so angry with him about. I wonder what he's done. And then this servant girl walks up to Peter. And she looks at him, and, and likely she has this kind of dawning recognition of who he is. 
Now, if you're going to pick an innocent person in this group, if you're going to pick this kind of non-threatening person in the group, it would be the servant girl, right? And this is why Luke gives us this detail. So you have this kind of innocent bystander person, this servant girl who wanders up to Peter. She looks at him, and, and she's kind of formulating the words, and then she says to him, she sees him in the light, looks closely at him, and says, this man was also with him. She says, this guy in there that they're yelling at, this Jesus that they're, that they're talking forcefully to, and I, and I can hear slaps and I can hear punches. This guy right here standing beside you getting warm, I think he was with him as well. And Peter just reflexively says no. Have you ever reflexively said something and then thought to yourself, that wasn't true, why did I say it? Is that just me? And so like somebody asks you something, does this make me look silly? No! Ooh. A little bit. A little bit silly, a little bit silly. Just trying to be kind. So it seems that Peter just kind of reflexively gives his response. He can tell that the crowd isn't going the right way for Jesus. And so when questioned, aren't you with him as well, he denies it. Woman, I do not know him. He denies him once. A little later, somebody else saw him and said, you also are with them. Peter says, and, and I made this comment earlier, he must be related to Justin. He says, man, I am not. So he denies it again. He says, he says I don't know him. I, I'm, I don't know him. But now he's got some time to think about it. Luke gives us this indication that there's about an hour gap between the first two questions and this third question. So for an hour, he has an opportunity to sit and think, reflexively, I have denied him. I've denied him. He feels the warmth of the fire. He still sees some of those people in the, in, in the crowd gathered there closely to him he's able to remember what it felt like to say I don't know him I'm not associated with him although hours ago I confessed that he was the Christ the anointed one the Messiah now when it will cost me something I want no part in him I want no part in Christ. So some time has taken place. Verse 59 says, After about an interval of an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. Now in this moment, at his denial, a couple of things happen all at one time. And, and I just want to make sure that we're clear on how this scene is set up. While he's still speaking, a rooster crows. In the midst of his denial, a rooster crows. And so he hears something. And in the midst of his denial, he sees something. He looks over and he locks eyes with Jesus. Three times he denied him. And this third time, so incredibly powerful and devastating to Peter's soul says, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And the text tells us that he went out weeping bitterly. Jesus is ultimately crucified. He's put in the grave. He, he raises from the dead. He appears first to the women who were following him. Then he appears to the disciples. 
but we still don't hear any real word of Peter's kind of reconciliation to the group, Peter's reconciliation to the other disciples, Peter's restoration and healing. Three chances he had to stand for Jesus and three chances he didn't take. He failed three separate times to stand for Jesus. When John 21 rolls around, we see an interesting thing take place. Jesus appears before the disciples for a third time. And we find that the disciples are out fishing. Now, they're in the area of Galilee, and it seems to be that they're there because Jesus had told them that he would meet them there. You can see that in Mark 16 and elsewhere. And so they're there, and, and while they're waiting for Jesus to show up, they, they get hungry, or for whatever reason, they go out and they go to fish. And they fish all night, and they've not had much luck. They're in there, and they're fishing all night, and they've not had much luck. And then Jesus shows up early the next morning. Now, they're about a about 100 yards or so off the coast. It's early in the morning, so it makes good sense that they couldn't tell exactly who he was. So Jesus asked the question, have you had any fish? And he said, no. And so Jesus gives this instruction, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. Well, as you read along, you find that they cast the nets on the right side of the boat, and they're going to pull it up, and, and there's such a large catch of fish that they can't pull it in. Well, about this time, the beloved disciple, John, looks and he says, hey, hey, Peter, I think that's I, I think that's Jesus on the shore. Well, Peter is in some sense of disarray, so he grabs all of his clothes, throws them around himself, and dives in the water. He's 100 yards off. He's a much better swimmer than I am. And so Peter's kicking and flailing and, and makes, his, makes his way to the shore, and then the text tells us the rest of the disciples, just, they just took the boat in because it floats. And so Peter gets there, and, and then he goes over, and he helps the disciples to bring the, sh- the, the fish into the land, and look, they look over, and they see Jesus gathered this time by a charcoal fire. And Jesus is there, and he has some fish on the fire, and he's got some bread. And he's inviting them to come and to have breakfast with him. Now, according to the unfolding of the gospel, this is the second time recently Peter's going to gather around a fire. The last time he gathered around a fire, he had three opportunities to stand for Jesus, and in three opportunities, he failed to stand for Jesus. Three times. Now remember Jesus' words. When you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. The disciples need Simon Peter. So they're all there together again. Seven of them this time, seated around a charcoal fire outside with Jesus. And they're eating and they're, they're talking and they're having conversation. In the verse 15, it says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now this is a difficult question, I would imagine, not only for Simon Peter, but also for the disciples. You see, the disciples by this point would have known of his betrayal. And so in terms of kind of comparative understanding of of the legitimacy of anything he's getting ready to say, the disciples are thinking through this. Hey, uh, like Jesus, I know you're asking him this question, but uh, John, did you you betray Jesus three times? No. Uh, Nathaniel, did you betray Jesus three times? No. So I'm just just, just throwing that out there. This would be an interesting time for him to respond. He says, do you love me more than these? It's what he's asking is for Simon to look at the other disciples and answer whether or not he loves Jesus more than they do. This is a test of his strength. This is a test of his restoration. And this is a test of 
his determination to follow Jesus. Do you love me more than these? Simon thinks about it and he responds. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So he says to him, feed my lambs. It's a curious response, isn't it? But I think when we think of it in terms of who Jesus is and the things Jesus has said to us before, and you go to John 10 and you read through John 10, what is the one thing Jesus continued to refer to himself as in that? He's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. I lay down my life for the sheep. By this, I'm known as the good shepherd that I lay down my life for the sheep. So what Jesus is preparing to do for Peter is to call Peter to walk in the same line of Jesus. Jesus is known as the good shepherd. And so here in this, when Peter responds and says, you know all things, you know that I love you, he turns around and he says, feed my lambs. Now who would lambs be in this? Lambs would essentially be recent converts to Christianity. People who have recently or are getting ready to, to come to faith in Jesus. And so he's entrusting to Peter the next generation of Christianity. The next generation of Christianity, Jesus is taking it and he's entrusting it to Peter. He says, feed my lambs. He says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He responds. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus responds. He says, tend my sheep. And so he's, he said, you've got to feed my lambs. And here he says, tend my sheep. Now, what Jesus is doing is giving him an indication for what it's going to look like for Peter to be ministering the word of God. If you take this word, kind of tend here, and go to 1 Peter 5, 2, you'll recognize that it's the same word in the Greek. Where Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So what he's calling him to do effectively is to be a pastor to those who would follow Jesus. So Peter's got to play a vital role. He's got to be there for the careful instruction and feeding of those who would come to Christianity, and then he's got to serve as a pastor. He's strengthening him. Jesus is turning him. He's helping to see that there is a plan and a purpose for Peter within the unfolding kingdom of God. He says to him, tend or pastor or shepherd my sheep. So then he comes to him a third time. I can remember a few times in my life where somebody has asked me a question and I've answered. And then they've asked me the same question and I've answered. And, and when they go to ask me a third time, I begin to think that I'm distinctly misunderstanding their question. So I'll say something along these lines. Would you, would you mind rephrasing the question? Or am I just giving you a bad answer? There's something so much more potent, so much more powerful afoot than simple miscommunication. So he says to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Luke gives us a window into the internal feelings of Simon Peter. 
He was grieved. The last time Peter faced the same question three times, it was a question of the acknowledgement of Jesus. And three times he failed. And what seems to be true is that Peter and Jesus have not had a conversation directly about his failure. Jesus hasn't come up to him and said, look, I told you so. He's not rubbed it in his face. But instead, he's using the same setup, three of the same questions to restore Peter, to commission Peter, and to send Peter out. Peter's grieved because in some sense he recognizes I'm absolutely not worthy. I failed the test. I showed myself to be a liar, and I showed myself to be a faithless follower of Jesus Christ. In essence, I showed that I wasn't a follower of Jesus. And so here he is again. Here's the test. Do you love me? He says, Lord, you know everything. Listen to that. You know everything. He doesn't just say merely, you know all facts and you know all figures and you were there. But in essence, he's inviting him. He says, Lord, you know my heart. You know whether or not what I'm saying is true. You know everything. You know that I love you. So Jesus affirms him and he says, feed my sheep. What Jesus does next is curious. He depicts in colorful language the way that Peter would be put to death. Ultimately, he would be crucified. And this is how Jesus describes it. He says, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter is given a picture in this moment when he testifies to God's goodness, when he testifies to his love for Jesus. He's given a window into his future. Notice he says, I have told you this so he would know by what type of death he would glorify God. Peter's life could have easily been left there in ruin and weeping bitterly. When he denied Jesus, each of those three times, he was given an opportunity to turn and to follow, to pivot and let the words that Jesus had said about him be found true. When you've been turned again, strengthen your brothers. That could be a truth for him. He could live according to the prophecy Jesus had spoken of him or... He could choose to stay in his failure and stay in his defeat. In essence, staying in a place without the forgiveness of Jesus. What Jesus wants Peter to see is that the plan and the purpose for him is the expansion of the kingdom. When our God forgives, he forgives fully. He forgives finally. He forgives completely. There is no lasting imprint whereby God is failing to clean us and to make us whole. 
Some of us today who are Christians, we have made horrible messes of our lives. In the midst of marriage, we've stepped out on our spouses and we have devastated everyone. And this question remains, can we be restored to God? I think one of the things that makes this so incredibly hard is that in some of these instances, we can't possibly be restored to our families. People move on and get remarried. The devastation that you have brought to your family has been so gross, so devastating, that the ramifications of that, the consequences of that, have led to the impossibility, practically speaking, of you being reunited to your spouse. And so we look at that, and we look at the consequences of our actions, or we look at the consequences of people not being able to trust us because we've just lied too much, and we begin to wonder if God perhaps feels the same way about us. If when God looks at me, does he only see the trail of all the mistakes I've made? Nobody else sees them. Perhaps nobody even else knows them. They've been kept secret. I've done a good job of hiding them. But in some sense, I wonder if God, as he sees them, if he has any use for me after this. I can tell you, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 gives us an incredibly helpful word on forgiveness. It says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If you would confess your sins to God, you would find that he stands ready, willing, and desirous to forgive you of your sins. Man, we serve a God who is not just able, but a God who desires to see you reconciled. And this God, he does something so incredibly amazing. See, he doesn't just forgive you of your sins. He doesn't just say, hey, look, it's no big deal. You know, I've taken care of that. But he goes past forgiveness, this verse tells us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He restores you to himself by forgiving you. And he eradicates the past mistakes by cleansing you. This is the power of the forgiveness found in the gospel. This is a power found in only the blood of Jesus. And he calls us as Christians to constantly live in the middle of this. I can tell you I've talked to a number of people who have sinned. They've done things that just kind of constantly sidelining them. Because they in some sense feel like their past mistakes loom larger, appear much bolder and brighter than does the forgiveness of Jesus. The word that Jesus spoke to Peter is the word that he would have me speak to you today. Forgiveness and restoration for you is on the far side of failure, not the near side. You cannot be forgiven. You can't get the forgiveness of Jesus on on the near side of your mistake. But on the far side, it's so much sweeter when God calls you and welcomes you into the embrace of his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. But still there are some that as you sit here and, and, and you'd say, I just don't know. I just don't know if I can put my faith in in God. I'm just not all that sure about Jesus. I just want to be really clear on something. God is not asking you to move through and confess your moral failures. And if you've kind of 
gone through this litany and you've created this list of all the things oh, I cheated on taxes this year and I did this this year and I slashed this guy's tires because he cut me off at Walmart parking lot and I, you know, whatever it is. That was really weird. I don't know why you did that. But whatever it is, God is not waiting for you to move through and to clean up your life before you can receive forgiveness. The primary need, the sole need of a person who doesn't follow Jesus in terms of forgiveness is to be forgiven unbelief. Until you come to know Jesus, none of your sins can be forgiven. But in coming to know Jesus, all of your sins are forgiven. This is the gospel we preach. The creator of the universe spoke all things into existence and that humanity rebelled against him. That you and I join in that rebellion. We sin against this holy God. And this holy God, knowing our rebellion, knowing our wickedness, knowing our waywardness, took on flesh and, and came as in human form to live among his creation and to suffer and die at the hands of his creation and then to rise again in overcoming sin and death and taking the penalty and the punishment for your sin and my sin, he asks us if we want to be forgiven. Do you want to know him? Do you want to receive his forgiveness? All you have to do is ask. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word, its clarity. Father, I pray that you would lead us to walk in forgiveness, walk in your goodness, to trust in your mercy. Father, I pray for those in this room that they would look at their lives and say, I follow Jesus. I just feel like my mistakes are too significant to be useful for him that they would recognize your strong arm stands ready to cover all of their sins. God, that you would restore them to be useful and help them to understand that they are useful for your kingdom. And Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit to you, who have yet to turn their lives, submit, and follow your son Jesus. Father, that today you'd be working in their hearts to cause them to confess your son Jesus is Savior and Lord. We submit these things to you in his name. Amen.